Go all the other teens that you guys are rooting for. You guys can uh, grab your Bibles here, open up to Matthew 28, and we are wrapping up our mini-series on the practices of the church, and we're going to end where we began. Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20, we'll begin by reading it. It says this, The eleven disciples traveled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray and ask God to speak to us this morning. Father, Thank you for your word. God, you've given us the scriptures. You have revealed to us who you are, what you've done, and what you are going to do. You've revealed to us, uh, God, what you're calling us to as the church, as Christians. And God, I pray that as we study the mission of the church this morning, that our hearts would be just strengthened. God, they'd be convicted. They would be motivated to engage with your mission. God, I pray that we'd be convinced this morning that there's nothing greater we could give our lives to than the mission of God, the kingdom of God. pray you'd be with us, speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in our last week studying the practices of the church, and we've been trying to answer the question from the Bible, what is the church supposed to do? Not what do I think the church is supposed to do? What do you think the church is supposed to do? What did the church you grew up to do? We want to know what does the Bible have to say about this question? What does Jesus have to say about it? And so we looked at in week one that the church is supposed to baptize. That's what Jesus says. Go therefore make disciples baptizing them. We're to baptize believers in Jesus. In week two, we looked at how the church is to practice communion or the Lord's Supper. This is about remembering Jesus. And last week, we looked at how the church is supposed to practice membership, which is about living under the authority of the teaching of Jesus. And we see each of these practices prescribed by the Lord Jesus in Matthew 28. And this morning, to close the series, we're going to look at the practice that holds them all together which is mission. The church is to accomplish the mission of God. So baptism, communion, membership, all important and necessary, but they are part of a broader mission that Jesus has given the church. In fact, since at least the 17th century, early 1600s, I think is is where this is traced to, but for centuries, the church, Christians have referred to this passage as the Great Commission. The Great Commission of Jesus to his church. Commission is a word that we don't use too often. It means a mission, assignment, or duty issued to a person or a group of people. My kids have been studying Michelangelo in school recently. Not the Ninja Turtle, (laughs) but the Italian artist, Michelangelo. Michelangelo was commissioned by the Pope of the Roman Catholic Church in the year 1508 to paint the Sistine Chapel. How many of you guys have, raise your hand if you've ever been to the Sistine Chapel. Anybody? Awesome. A couple people. The Sistine Chapel uh, was painted by Michelangelo. It took him four years to do it. He had to get up on this, they had to build special scaffolding. I have a picture of it here. 
Most of the painting is on the ceiling of this large, very tall cathedral. And initially, Michelangelo said, hey, thanks, but no thanks. He, he wanted nothing to do with it. Uh, for a few years, he denied the commission, and eventually the Pope said, hey, I'm not asking. <laughs> You're going to do it. The Pope was very powerful at that time, so eventually Michelangelo, he painted the Sistine Chapel. He was commissioned to do that work, and today it is considered by many historians and art scholars to be one of the greatest works of art produced in all of human history, which is pretty remarkable. It was something he was commissioned, he was called on to do. And most of you, got some bad news for you, most of you are not ever going to be commissioned to create great works of art. You're just not. You're, you're not going to be commissioned to compose great symphonies or to design and build great cathedrals or to invent world-changing technology. And I don't know about you, but sometimes that bothers me. <laughs> when, I, when I look at something like that, like Michelangelo, there's something in me that says, I want to do something great. I want to be a part of something great, and yet most people just aren't. There's 8 billion people in the world. Not everybody can paint the Sistine Chapel. But that is in you. It's like, I want to be a part of something great. This is, I think, why people are so obsessed with sports. It's like you, you get to touch greatness. I don't even like college football, but I heard about this story, the Colorado Buffaloes. Deion Sanders, who's an NFL Hall of Famer, he's coaching this team, the Colorado Buffaloes, and his son plays quarterback, and it's this incredible story. And I found myself looking into this and just fascinated by this story this last week when I heard about it, and I thought, I don't care about this at all. Why am I interested in the Colorado Buffaloes? I don't even watch college football. And it's because it looks like maybe something great is happening here. Maybe something great is about to happen, and we're like moths to a flame. We want greatness. We want to be a part of greatness, accomplish things that are going to last way beyond our lifetime. And this is the thing that is probably the most exciting to me about following Jesus, is that the church is to accomplish the mission of God. Think about that for a minute. The church, you get to be involved in the mission of God. If you're a Christian, then God is calling you with the rest of the church, but he's calling you specifically, individually, to be a part of something great. And not just like a great thing among other options of great things. God is calling you to be a part of the greatest thing that will ever happen in the history of the universe, which is the building of his kingdom. He is calling you to be a part of his mission. There is nothing more important, nothing more lasting, nothing more transcendent, nothing more fulfilling or exciting that you could give your life to than the mission of God. And that's what Jesus gives the church in this passage. So, first question, what is it? What is the mission of the church? There's many ways that you could articulate this or formulate this from the Bible, but I'm going to explain it in terms of our church's own mission statement. So at Walnut Creek, we have a written mission statement. There's nothing magical about it. It's not a direct quotation from the Bible. It is a synthesis. It's our way of internalizing and explaining what we believe is the clear mission of God for the church in the Bible. So here it is. Walnut Creek Church exists to glorify God by making authentic disciples of Jesus Christ who love and worship Him 
in all they do. Now we're going to break this down and connect it to Jesus's teaching in Matthew 28. So the first component of the mission, to glorify God. The church exists to glorify God. Verse 16 says this, the 11 disciples traveled to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshiped. Okay, so context, Jesus, he's had a three-year public ministry. He's doing miracles, casting out demons. He's healing thousands of people. He's raised people from the dead. He's established that he is the Messiah. But the Jews rejected him, handed him over to the Romans who tortured and crucified him as a common criminal. So thousands of eyewitnesses have seen Jesus die. Now Jesus is resurrected. At least hundreds of eyewitnesses have seen him raised from death. For 40 days, he's in and around Jerusalem teaching his disciples. This is towards the end of that 40 days before he ascends back into heaven. And so there's a conversation. Jesus says, hey, meet me in this certain place near Galilee. They meet him. They see the risen Jesus. And it says they worshiped him. Now, this is a big deal because in the Bible, worship is reserved for God alone. Only God is to be worshiped. In fact, when God gives the Ten Commandments, the law, in the book of Exodus, chapter 20, the first two, you got only Ten Commandments, the first two are about worship. He says this in verse 2 of Exodus 20, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Do not have other gods besides me. Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow in worship to them. In the Old Testament, misplaced worship is one of the things God hates the most. He will not tolerate it. He says, you worship me only. And yet, these are Jews whose whole life is built around the law of Moses, and they are worshiping a man. They're worshiping Jesus, which tells us they are utterly convinced this is God. Jesus is God. That's the only way they would ever worship him. And Jesus confirms this. Verse 18, Jesus says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. How can he say that? Even if Jesus was the king of the whole world, physically, militarily, politically, and could literally say, I have all authority on the whole world, how could he say he has all authority in heaven? He could only say this if he is God. And indeed, that's who Jesus is. The testimony of the scriptures, Old and New Testament, tell us that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. John chapter 1 says he's the creator of the universe. Hebrews chapter 1 says it is through the Son that the Father created the universe. Colossians says he's the image of the invisible God. So nobody's ever seen God the Father. Paul says if you've seen Jesus, though, then you've seen him. God, the Son of God, became a man. And if you're a human being, then the overarching purpose of your life is to glorify God. Glory and worship are intricately connected. So to glory in God and glorify God is to worship God. Genesis 1.27 says, if you're a human being, then you were made in his image. Think about that for a second. 
Genesis 1 says that God made people, he made every single one of you, in his image and likeness. That's incredible, especially when you consider Colossians says Jesus is the image of the invisible God, and you've been made in his image. Not exactly the same as Jesus. Jesus is the image of God. He wasn't made. He's eternal, but you were made in his image. God created you in his image and likeness, which means you were made to reflect his glory to the world around you. This is why you exist. You exist to worship and enjoy God forever. And this is why, side note, this is why the world can't satisfy you. The world cannot satisfy you. And if you've never reached this conclusion on your own, we're, I'm going to help you see it right now. We're going to do a little thought experiment, okay? So, thought experiment, here it is. I want you to think this first person. If I could only have blank, then I would be happy. I think we have that. If I, if I could only have, okay, fill in the blank, then, man, I'd have everything I need. I'd be fully satisfied, totally happy, full of joy, no stress. What is in the blank for you? If I could only have my mortgage paid off, oof, <laughs> then I'd be free. <laughs> if I could only have this wayward child repent, and just live like a halfway well-adjusted life, then, oh man, so much stress would be gone. If I could only get that promotion at work, if I could, if I could only meet the love of my life, I'm sick of being single, if I could only get pregnant or get the kids out of the house, <laughs> whichever end of the spectrum you're on, if I only had more money, better friendships, more time for my hobbies, then I'd be happy. And on and on it goes. And here's the crazy part. Unless you're like 14 years old, you know it's not true. You know it. Because most of those things that occupy that blank or did in the past, you've already experienced them. Or you're going to experience them in the future. And you know they won't satisfy you. You get the thing that's in the blank and you're so happy. I am looking forward to the day I pay off my mortgage. I'll be 52 years old and my current rate, my current pace, I'm excited about that. And I will be so happy on that day and then the next day it'll be on to something else. Maybe you're happy for a week, maybe six months, but then it's on to the next thing. Your experience in this life cannot fulfill you because it's not what you were made for. It's not why you exist. You were made to experience and enjoy the glory of God. You were made for a relationship with Him. This is why Psalm 37 says, take delight in the Lord and He will give you your heart's desires. That's amazing. That's what we all are looking for. I want my heart's desires and we think it's this, and you get it, and it just vanishes. It's like a mist. You can't get your hands around it. It's because you're made for God. Now, we could just stop there. That's the mission. Glorify God, period. But we don't stop there. The mission is to glorify God, dot, 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 and then there's all that other stuff. Why is that stuff in there? Well, it's because we don't live in the perfect paradise of Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 3 happened where the man and the woman who are made in the image of God to glorify him and enjoy relationship with him forever, they rebelled against him. They sinned. They broke his command. 
And because of that, sin has entered the world. The creation is fractured. It's cursed by sin. And you don't have to look far to see this. All of the pain and all of the brokenness and the hatred and the war and the poverty and the sickness and death and disease, the evil that's in the world, it's because of sin. It's because people rebelled against God. Because of that, the creation is cursed. Instead of life, people experience death. Instead of enjoying God, people worship themselves and they worship things that are in the world. And so the question then becomes, how do we glorify God in a world broken by sin? How do we glorify God to the world around us when they hate Him and want nothing to do with Him? Or maybe they believe in God But they certainly don't want to worship him. They don't want to obey him. Well, this is where the rest of the mission becomes important. So first component of the mission, to glorify God. Second component of the mission, make disciples. It says in verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And remember, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So we've talked about the baptism part. We've talked about the remembering part. We haven't yet talked about the go make disciples part. So how do you glorify God in a world that hates him? You make disciples. That's what you do. Now, what is a disciple? It's probably a word that you don't use too often in your daily life, unless you're a disciple yourself. What is a disciple? Well, it's the Greek word mathetes, and it's a very simple, straightforward, fairly general word. It means a learner or a pupil. So a disciple is a student. That's what it is. But it's not like a sixth grade math student. That's not the image you should have. It's like a medical student or, or a student in a PhD program or an apprentice in the trades. It is somebody who is spending all of their energy, all of their effort trying to become something. They are sitting under the tutelage of a teacher or teachers, and they are immersed in this teaching, trying to become something. So a disciple of Jesus, what is that? What does it mean to be a student of Jesus? Well, there are at least four aspects of discipleship that flow out of Matthew 28. A disciple of Jesus is first a believer in Jesus. Second, who has been baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Third, it's a believer in Jesus who is obedient to the teachings of Jesus. He says, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And fourth, implicit, implied in Matthew 28, is that a disciple of Jesus makes disciples of Jesus. So he's speaking to his disciples and he says, go make more disciples. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. In our mission statement, we use the adjective authentic disciples. This is the third component. So glorify God by making disciples who are authentic disciples. That's a very intentional adjective, authentic. The New Testament, very clear that not everyone who claims to know Jesus, not everybody who claims to love Jesus, not everybody who raises their hand and says, hey, I'm a Christian, I'm evangelical, not all those people are legit. This is what Jesus taught. He said that there will be authenticating marks of true Christians. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, he says, be on your guard against false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruit. 
Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. So this is a Jewish context. He says there's going to be Jews who claim to love God, know God, even speak on behalf of, as, of God as prophets, but he says they're fake. They're not real. How do you know which ones are the real thing? How do you know which ones are authentic? He says a tree is going to be recognized by its fruit. An apple tree produces apples. That's the idea. A fig tree produces figs. Look for the fruit. Later in the same sermon, Jesus says that when he returns to judge the world, see, Jesus came, he was incarnate, he, bore, he, he rose from death, he ascended back into heaven, and he said that he's going to come back a second time to judge the world. And he says, on that day, there's going to be many, many, many people who say, I'm with Jesus, I'm a Christian, I know him, I'm a believer. Look at my life, I did all kinds of things in the name of Jesus. And Jesus says, he will look at those people and say, depart from me, I never knew you. It wasn't real. They were Christians in name only, but not in reality. They weren't authentic disciples. So what makes a disciple of Jesus authentic? I think the heart of the answer is in Matthew 22. Jesus is asked by one of the experts in the law a question to test him, to try to trip him up. He says, teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? The law is the Old Testament. First five books, books of Moses. Which one's the greatest command? Tons of commands in there. He said to him, love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. So what makes a disciple of Jesus authentic? It's what they love. It is what they love. Or rather, who they love. A true disciple of Jesus will be recognized by worship and love for God more than anything else. Not by church attendance. That's not it. Not by having an intricate knowledge of correct doctrine. Not by a squeaky clean life. Now those things are important. The Bible talks about all those things. We should have right doctrine. We should care about what the Bible teaches. We should be precise about what we believe and what we affirm. We should care about our living. We should live righteously. We should care about personal holiness. We should love coming to church and make that a priority. But those are not the primary markers of an authentic disciple. They're important. But they're not the heart of the matter. The Jews, think about the Jews. In the day of Jesus, they were an incredibly religious people. They were far more morally upright as a culture than we are. I mean, they would put us to shame as far as squeaky, clean living, perfect church attendance, perfect obedience to the Sabbath. But they did not love God. They didn't love God. They used God like a badge of honor. They used his commands to be self-righteous, to say, we're better than everyone around us. Look at how well we live. Look at how perfectly we follow all God's commands. And they hated and rejected Jesus. An authentic, born-again Christian, a believer in Jesus, 
in the depths of their heart says this, if I could only have Jesus, then I would be happy. If I could just have him, if I could just know him, if I could just have him in my life and experience a relationship with him, then I'll be fulfilled. Then I'll be satisfied. An authentic disciple loves and worships God in all they do. And when you love God that way, I'm just telling you, I've been on both sides of this equation. When you love God that way, then obeying Him is not a chore. It's a delight. It doesn't mean that it's easy, (laughs) but you love it. Just like if you're a marathon runner, and you love running marathons and you want to get faster, when you go out for a 15-mile run at pace, it's not easy, but you love it. It's a delight for you. And for the Christian, when you love God and you want to know Him and you want to walk with Him, His commands become a delight. His mission is not a burden, like, oh my gosh, I've got to give my life to this thing. I'd rather give it to this. It becomes an adventure. It becomes a joy. You just say, of course this is what I want to give my life to because I love him. I want to walk with him. I want to know him. That's why Paul can say, I want to know the fellowship of his suffering. He embraced suffering because he said, I get to experience Jesus more in it. And when you love him, you're going to want others to know him as well. When you know God that way, you will want to make him known. You'll want to glorify him which is why Jesus says the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. I want to know God. I want to make him known. So that's the mission based on Matthew 28, Matthew 22, and really the whole story of the Bible. The church exists to glorify God by making authentic disciples of Jesus Christ who love and worship him in all they do. Now that begs the question, how do you do it? (laughs) How do you make a disciple? I have made scrambled eggs before. I've made my bed. I made a a pair of shorts in home at class in fifth grade that were pretty cool. (laughs) How do you make a disciple? What does that even mean? What does it mean to make a disciple? Well, remember what a disciple is. It is more than this, but it's not less. It is at least a believer in Jesus, been baptized. They're an obedient student to the teachings of Jesus. They don't know him just cognitively. They're actually trying to live out his teachings, and they make disciples of Jesus. So to make a disciple means that someone who was not previously a disciple of Jesus, meaning they lacked at least one of those four bullet points. Maybe they're not a Christian. Maybe they are a Christian, but they're just a baby Christian. They've never even been baptized. Maybe they have come to faith and they've been baptized, but they they don't really know God's word. They're not trained in the teachings of Jesus. Or maybe they do have some background in God's word, but they're really not on the team trying to make disciples. So somebody, to make a disciple means that somebody who's not previously a disciple has become a disciple of Jesus as a result, at least in part, of your intentional effort and relationship with them. That's what it means to make a disciple. You come alongside somebody and you teach them to follow Christ. It's a historian and a scholar, Bible scholar, also a pastor named Mark Dever. And he wrote a book called Discipling, which is a great book. I'd highly recommend you could read it in like two hours. Discipling by Mark Dever. But he defines discipling as a verb, which is helpful. And here's his definition. 
He says it's initiating a relationship in which you teach, correct, model, and love. That's how you make a disciple. Initiating a relationship in which you teach, correct, model, and love. Now, really important to understand, discipleship, making disciples, it is both a team and individual activity. So we're talking about the practices of the church. So when we talk about discipleship, you want to start there. The discipleship mission is a mission given first to the church. It's a practice of the church. So in what sense do we make disciples all together as a church? Look at Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, Paul says this, He himself, that's Jesus, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Why? Why did he give them? To equip the saints, that's Christians, for the work of ministry, to build up the body of Christ, that's the church, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity, with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. So one of the goals of discipleship is that the church and individual Christians would become more and more like Jesus. The end goal is that our lives, our thinking, our values, our affections, they're just like Jesus. That's what discipleship is. You grow to become like Jesus. He says then, verse 14, we'll no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness in the techniques of deceit. But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. From him, the whole body fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament promotes the growth of the body for building itself up in love by the proper working of each individual part. This is the metaphor we looked at last week. Paul loves this metaphor, that the church is the body of Christ. And so what that means is that there are individual body parts. There's fingers and toes and kneecaps and elbows and arms and legs and internal organs and all of the different parts, and you need all of them. The sum of the parts is the body. They work together in concert. And here what he says is that the body builds itself up in love. Elsewhere, he says, like, if one member of the body is hurting, the whole body hurts, which makes sense. So if if you injure your hand, you know the pain is here, the injury is here, but you feel that pain in your whole body. I remember one time I pinched my finger underneath my chair at work when I was working at Principal Financial Group, and I stood up, and the chair has, like, a spring in it, and my finger got pinched in between the bottom of my desk and the chair, And I had like a blister under my nail. (laughs) You know, just little fingertip injury. And I felt like I was going to pass out. Like I felt like I was going to throw up. It hurt so bad. I was like, what is going on? It's just my fingertip. But you've experienced that. So when one part of your body is hurt, the whole body is hurt. And when one part of your body is strengthened, the whole body is strengthened. So if you go out and you're going for runs a few times a week, and you're strengthening your cardiovascular system. What's getting stronger is your heart and lungs. But what happens is that endurance is going to impact your whole body. So you're not just going to get better at running. You're going to get better at everything. You're going to have better sleep. You're going to have better appetite. You're going to have better energy levels. And this is the idea. So the church builds itself up, meaning as I get stronger in my walk with the Lord, so do you. And as you get stronger in your walk with the Lord, so do I. And so the context of the gathered church is the primary place where disciples are made in the Bible. It's the primary place. 
So corporately, how do we initiate, teach, correct, model, and love? Well, we do it right here. This is why we're here this morning. It's to glorify God by making disciples. This is what we're doing. This is why we do community groups. This is why we have church membership. This is why we do outreach events, ministries. And I would say, if you're thinking about, man, how do I get on God's mission? How do I make disciples? Do not underestimate the value of just coming to church. This is not ancillary. It's not extracurricular to discipleship. It is where discipleship happens. This is why we spend so much time on Sundays teaching the Bible. It's because of our mission. Disciples of Jesus need to be taught Jesus' words. I love what Mark Dever says about this. In his book, Discipling, he says, the best thing I can say about time spent in a church where you're not normally hearing God's word is that you're wasting your time. That's because pastors teaching the word is the core of a church's discipling ministry. It provides the food and water that feeds all the other discipling relationships within the church. You experienced it last Sunday. Hopefully you experienced it the last time you sought counsel from an elder. If you didn't, change churches. Find a church where God's word will be taught to you for your soul's sake and for the sake of you helping others. So the mission of the church, this is our mission collectively to make disciples. But it's also clear the church is made up of its members. Church is not a building. It's not a room. It's people. The church is made up of individual members, which means if you're a Christian, then you are to make disciples. We are to do it together as a church, but you have personal responsibility in the mission of God. It's a team and individual activity. So what do you do besides come to church, come to community group? What else? How how do you make a disciple? Well, we're going to look at Dever's points, and these all come from Matthew 28. First, go. You need to go. You must go. And you think, well, I can't go. I got a full-time job. (laughs) I'm married. I got kids. This doesn't mean you need to go to China. It might the Spirit of God leads you through counsel and His Word in that way. But for most people, it's not going to mean go to a different country. It's probably not even going to mean go to a different city. It simply means initiate a relationship. Go to a person. Initiate a relationship with them. Now, nuts and bolts. This means you have to pick someone. People don't like this for some reason, but You need to pick somebody. Who are you going to go to? You have to actually decide. There needs to be a real-life person that you can teach, correct, model, love, and worship and obedience to Jesus to. So you need to identify someone. Now, we have a lot of young families in our church. If that's you, you start at home. Start with your spouse. Start with your kids. They ought to be at the top of your list. But don't stop there. I think many Christians, they say, well, I'm discipling my kids, so on mission, check. Don't stop there. And here's why. If you want to model discipleship for your kids, you have to be doing it with your peers. If you say, hey, you guys, we're disciples of Jesus. You're going to grow up to be disciples of Jesus. Let me show you how to do that. And a disciple of Jesus makes disciples of Jesus. And we're just discipling you. I think oftentimes that's going to ring hollow. It's going to ring hollow to your kids because many reasons. Your kids see the worst parts of you. 
That's part of it. And also, your kids see what you love. Your kids will know more than anyone else, what do you love? What are you really passionate about? And if you're really passionate about worshiping Jesus, you're going to care about discipleship outside of the home. So make disciples at home. Make disciples of your peers as well. Think about your neighbors. Think about your coworkers. Think about your extended family. I think one overlooked group when it comes to who do I pick, who is the person that I want to go to and initiate a relationship with, are just people at church. Your highest success rate of having somebody take you up on like, hey, yeah, I'll read the Bible with you. I'd love to get coffee and talk about Jesus are going to be people you meet here. And they might be people who are brand new to church. They've never come to church before. They might not even be Christians. But if they're in church, there's a much higher likelihood that they're going to want to engage with that type of a relationship, a relationship where you can teach, correct, model, and love. So that's the first thing. You have to go. You have to initiate relationships. Second, teach. Now, what do you teach? Well, Jesus says, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. So you're to teach the commands of Jesus, which includes the whole Bible. It's not just Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Jesus is the word. He is the living word of God. His commands include all of the scriptures, and that's what you are to teach. Now, an important point here, you cannot disciple a non-Christian. Okay, so in order to be a disciple, a person needs to be a believer in Jesus. So for the person who's not a Christian, you first teach them the gospel. That's what we call evangelism. Evangelism is teaching somebody the gospel in an effort to persuade them to believe it. That's evangelism. This is the first step to discipleship. This is why Paul says, in 2 Corinthians 5.20, he says, we are ambassadors for Christ, certain that God is appealing through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Maybe you're here this morning, you're thinking, okay, what, what does it mean to be a believer in Jesus. What does that mean? Like you just believe he existed? Well, yes. (laughs) But it's much more than that. When we talk about believers, we're talking about people who believe the gospel. You're a believer in the message of the gospel. The word gospel, it simply means good news. That's what the word means. The good news about Jesus. But the good news, the gospel is only good news if you first understand the bad news. So we got to communicate the good news, but first the bad news. And let me illustrate this quickly. So imagine you're having an ankle issue. You know, you're playing with your kids or you're out for a run or whatever. You turn your ankle, oh man, really bad. It's all swollen. And uh, you go to the doctor and you're like, hey, I need an x-ray. My ankle's in really bad shape. It's really hurting. Can't really walk. So he looks at your ankle, does an examination. He says, hey, I got great news for you. We discovered the cure for cancer. Now, you might be excited about that. It's like, hey, that, that's pretty exciting. I mean, that's a big deal. But probably at some point in that conversation, you're going to be thinking, what about my ankle, though? <laughs> you know, I, I can't walk. What, what's going on with the ankle? Now, because it doesn't, that's, that's good news, but it doesn't really impact you. It's not really news for you. But let's change the scenario. Imagine, same situation, you go into the doctor, ankle's hurting, they do an x-ray, and he says, hey, listen, I got some bad news. Um, you did sprain your ankle, but we also found a huge tumor in there. And that's why you hurt it so bad. And the tumor is cancerous. It's very aggressive. You probably only have a few months to live. But I've got some good news we have discovered the cure for this type of cancer. 
you're going to receive that good news very differently in that scenario. You're going to say, oh my goodness, this is going to save my life. This is amazing. And you're going to say, give it to me. (laughs) Give me the cure. The gospel is like that. And the bad news is that you've sinned. That's the bad news. The bad news is that you have broken God's laws. So you remember the first two commands out of the ten? You've broken both of those, all of you. You have loved things other than God, more than God. And you've made idols for yourself, maybe not like little statues, but there are things in your life that are preeminent. This is the most important thing, the most important person, way above God. You don't even think about God. This is the thing you're obsessed with. This is the thing that you're chasing. And you've broken all of his other laws in the Ten Commandments as well. You've lied, and you've lusted, and you've hated in your heart. And I don't need to know you personally to know that those things are true about you. Because the Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Those things are true about me. Because we're people, we sin, we fall short of God's standard, and we break God's commands. And the bad news is that because God is holy and just and perfect, he has to punish you. He has to. God and sin are like bleach and germs. You're made for a relationship with him, but if you were to enter into the presence of God in all of his glory right now, you'd be incinerated by his holiness. He's too perfect. He's too good. He's too just. He has to punish sin. He can't just sweep it under the rug. He can't just let it go. There has to be punishment. And this is why hell exists. It is what every human being deserves, is to be separated from the presence of God. So what's the good news? Well, the good news is this is why God sent Jesus. God, the eternal begotten Son of God, Jesus, became a man. And he lived a sinless, perfect, holy, righteous life. And when Jesus went to the cross, it wasn't an accident. It wasn't a mistake. He didn't call an audible. This was the reason he came. He went to the cross to be punished in your place. On the cross, the Lord Jesus, as he suffered, he was receiving the wrath of God for you that you deserve. He became guilty so that you could be righteous. It's an exchange that takes place at the cross of Christ. Your debt is paid. This is how forgiveness is possible. It's an exchange. This is what the Bible calls atonement. Now the question is, what do you do to get that? You do nothing. You can do nothing. There's nothing that you can do to get that. God simply calls you to believe. There's no magic words. There's no ceremony. There's no specific prayer that you pray. It is a condition of your heart. The Bible says you must repent, which means you turn from sin, you turn away from the world, and you say, I want Jesus. I want him. I want the salvation that he offers. I want the life that he offers. I believe he died for me so that I can live. And the person who believes that is born again. You begin a new life spiritually. You're given the spirit of God. You're given eternal life. You enter for the first time into a relationship with your creator that starts now and will last forever in heaven. That's the gospel. And many Christians make the mistake of thinking that evangelism is discipleship. They get really excited. They say, we need to go tell everybody about the gospel, which is true. 
But that's just the starting point. (laughs) That's just the beginning. Once someone's a Christian, there's a lot more work to do. And so we have to share the gospel. We have to evangelize. But we also, it's, that's just the first step in making disciples. So you need to go. You need to teach. Thirdly, you need to correct. Wish we had way more time to talk about this. But we're not teaching people just so they can know information in their head. We're teaching them so they can do. So they can live. So discipleship, it's like coaching. I used to play sports in high school. And there's teaching, here's the information, but then there's correction. You did it wrong. Try again. And this, we should not see this as offensive in the church. It's a great act of love when your brother or sister says, hey, that's not how we do it. Try again. Correct. Fourth, model obedience to Jesus. You need to show people how it's done. And then fifth, maybe most importantly, is love. You need to buy what you're selling. Discipleship aims at love and worship of Jesus. And if you are trying to teach someone and model for someone love and worship of Jesus without having it, good luck. (laughs) It will be hollow and shallow, and you won't do it. You won't be motivated. If you don't actually love God, why would you ever try to get other people to love God? That's not how life works. So go teach, correct, model, and love. Now, how are we going to accomplish this as a church strategically, specifically, nuts and bolts? Two things quickly to close. One, prioritize church and community group. Be here regularly. Get connected to a community group. Hebrews 10 says, let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering since he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. See, when you understand that what we're doing here is core to the accomplishment of the mission, it changes the way that you approach gathering. Like, you should prepare for this time. You you should get ready to come here and worship God and receive His teaching from His Word and to participate in communion. It's a big deal. Same with community group. It's a big deal. Second, go. Three, three practical ways that you can go. One, find someone to study the Bible with. Find somebody to study the Bible with. And your experience with the Bible will dictate who this person is. Maybe you need to find somebody that you can impart some of your wisdom. In, maybe you've been studying the Bible for 15 years. And you say, hey, let me help you. Let's get together and study. Maybe you've never read the Bible. And you need to find somebody who's a little bit further along than you. And say, hey, would you read the Bible with me? Second, pray for people by name. You have to think of actual people in your life who don't know Jesus or who are not walking in discipleship and pray for them. Ask God to use you in their lives. And then lastly, don't underestimate the significance of this. Invite people to church. It's such a small thing. Invite people to church. Just be about inviting people. And maybe you know someone is like super hard-hearted. They're not about that at all. They would never come invite them to community group. Maybe not your Bible study, but invite them. Like we had people over to my house the other night. We grilled bratwurst and we just like hung out and let the kids play. You can invite someone to that. Hey, do you want want to come over to my house? We're having some friends over, grilling some bratwurst. We're going to play some Frisbee, whatever. Invite people into the church. Say, hey, come and see. Come and see people who love Jesus. It's powerful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this mission that you've given us. Um, God, I just feel inadequate to explain 
how exciting it is and how, how good it's been to give my life to this, Lord. I, God, I pray that we'd be a church that is about your mission for your glory. God, I pray that we would be people more and more who love you, who aren't looking to get filled up on money and success and even, even our families, God, that first and foremost, we would worship you. We would love you. And God, you would, you would use that Use that love and that passion to influence the community around us. God, we pray that you would make disciples. You would do it, God, that you would raise up laborers for your kingdom, for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.